All right, I, I'll just go ahead and confess. My name is Gordon Dabbs. I am a winter X Games addict. I really like the X Games. I like the Olympics too, but I think I'm going to, uh, for me, right? I'm just going to edge it out a little bit with the X Games. Olympics are cool. You've got, you know, the flags and you've got the pomp and circumstance. You've got skaters in sequiny, stretchy pants. You've got, um, you've got all sorts of cool stuff at the Olympics. But the X Games, yeah. They're spon- the X Games are like sponsored by Red Bull and Monster and stuff like that. And it is guys and girls rocking it on the super pipe. At 20 feet tall, and they're like popping way up in the air, doing crazy tricks. Dudes on snowmobiles weighing 450 pounds, doing flips and all sorts of crazy stuff. I can't take my eyes off the X Games. Um, To kind of think about the difference between the two, if you're tuning in on ESPN to the X Games, you're likely to see something like this. Right? Pretty cool. If you tune into the Winter Olympics, there is always a risk that you may see this. I don't always want to take the chance. So I'll go with the X Games. One, one thing you will see probably, though, if you're tuning into the X Games or the Olympics, you will hear language from the Bible, right? I mean, I even heard at the X Games this year, one of the tricks that somebody did, the announcer just called it, biblical. It was so cool. That was biblical, right? Or they'll use references from the Bible, like there was this really beautiful ESPN announcer that was, uh, was interviewing Sean White, the guy who was known for so long for the giant long red hair, the snowboarder. He's really, really good. And she's interviewing him, and she said, Sean White, you are like the Greek god Samson. And I'm thinking... <laughs> God, Samson. I I always thought of him as a non-God Hebrew in the Old Testament. But anyway, but at least she got the whole hair thing right, which is, I think, was what she was trying to say. But what you will hear anytime you're watching some big sporting event, especially when there is an underdog, you will hear the reference to David and Goliath. Some of you will remember the 1980 Winter Olympics. It was the U.S. men's hockey team against Goliath. Remember who was Goliath? The Soviet Union. It wasn't Russia back then. It was the Soviet Union. Sounds a lot more menacing. Um, and so we, and we defeated them, and we weren't supposed to. And so David and Goliath, I think David and Goliath has become the story, whether you are a Christian or a Muslim or a Buddhist, it is like the story that more than any other represents the underdog. Now, This is the thing about this story. David is only an underdog if you are, with all due respect, if you are an unbeliever. If you are an unbeliever, then David certainly was an underdog. But if you believe in the Bible and you believe in God, then you've got to be thinking, David and God together, well, Goliath didn't have a chance. Goliath didn't have a chance. He really wasn't so much of an underdog because he wasn't in that arena alone. The story of David and Goliath also reminds us that God knows us, that God loves us, and that you are never alone when you face your battles. You are always going into battle with the God that you love and the God that you serve And I believe that story and others in Scripture 
of the underdog remind us how God loves to use the underdog. God loves to use the person that doesn't have a chance. He doesn't. If you go from Genesis to Revelation, you don't see God choosing the strongest or the brightest or the most beautiful. You see God choosing folks like us. (laughs) No offense. Folks like us. Because when he uses common folks like us, guess who gets the glory? God gets the glory. And so this is on your outline this morning inside the bulletin. A few blanks to fill out. This one is really important. God God doesn't choose the able. God enables the chosen. God doesn't choose the able. He enables the the chosen. All right, would you just say that out loud with me right now? God doesn't choose the able. God enables the chosen, right? Now, hear me out. God is a lousy talent scout. He really is, right? Um, In fact, if you read the stories from the Bible, you see little aptitude on God's part for choosing those that we would deem to be the most capable, the most heroic, the most able. God is is often apparently intentionally choosing those who aren't those things, those who who should have a difficult time. When young David as a boy is called on to be king, God sends the prophet Samuel to anoint the new king. You remember the story. Samuel is looking at, he knows it's going to be one of Jesse's boys. And so he's looking at all these fine, strapping, handsome young boys. And he's like, got to be that one, got to be that one. And Samuel just can't believe it's the runt of the litter. It's David. And so we have this verse in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. And Samuel's comparing David with Saul, who was quite an impressive specimen. The Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. Talking about Saul. The Lord does not look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks where? At the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. You see, God is not scouting talent. God is in the business of scouting hearts, of looking for those who will be devoted to him. That's what he cares about. That's why God, in the beginning pages of the New Testament, chooses Mary. Let's see, teenage Peasant, unwed, perfect. Perfect. That's why God uses Gideon, runt of the litter, no count, thinks he's a nothing. Or how about Paul? Paul is going to be a guy in the New Testament who is used to preach the gospel to the four corners of the ancient world. Paul is the self described greatest sinner of all time. All right? That's how, that's how God rolls. That's how he works. He, he is scouting hearts. These are people who had hearts that longed to please and serve and honor God. Now, when you think about David versus Goliath, this would not, if this were happening today, like Super Bowl Sunday, this contest would not have been a difficult one for the Vegas 
odds makers. It would have been a huge line because nobody was voting for the shepherd boy. Nobody thought he had a chance. The Philistine. Now, you've probably heard descriptions. I'll just remind you of who this guy is. Philistine hero Goliath stands more or less, does it really matter, around nine feet tall. Really, really, really tall. We know that he wasn't like the Sean Bradley thin type. He was massive because his armor alone weighed around 120 pounds. And then his weapon of choice was this spear. This was not an ordinary spear. It was a very heavy spear, which the Bible tells us weighed 15 pounds. And so he's able to hurl this 15-pound spear and do a lot of damage. He is essentially the ancient version of an Abram's tank. He was bad boy. And he wasn't just well-equipped and big. He was also a seasoned and experienced warrior. And then we have David... The young shepherd boy, pretty good with his slingshot, yeah. But, uh, I mean, do the math on this one, and you see who is favored to come out on top of this. Now, the Philistines, I think this is worth noting. I don't know. Their army wasn't particularly used to fighting. I mean, they put on all their stuff and had their weapons. They weren't really used to fighting because generally, Goliath resolved things before they were ever needed right? Um, This was a custom in the ancient world, and perhaps it's one we might do well to renew today. You would simply, in many instances, choose your very best fighter to go against the very best fighter from the other side to minimize casualties. Sometimes this worked, sometimes it didn't. But in this case, Goliath was so clearly the hero of the Philistines, and so clearly superior to anyone else any, uh, any other army could put up against him, they generally didn't even have to fight. All right? So the scene in 1 Samuel chapter 17 is that Goliath is making this challenge. He's throwing down the gauntlet. He's saying to the army of Israel, will any of you come out and fight me one against one? Does anybody have the guts to come out here and fight me? And this goes on for about six weeks. The taunting, all right, the the ridicule, um, the challenge is going on for like six weeks. Day after day, he makes these challenges. And we see the reaction by the army of Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 24. It says this, when the Israelites saw the man, they all ran off from him. In great fear. Run away. It's Goliath. All of them. Except one. Except David. David hears the challenges. That Goliath is throwing down. And David says. I'll take you on. And David doesn't run away from Goliath. You remember the story. In fact this is one Bible story. I'm pretty sure everybody knows how it turns out. David runs at Goliath, swings his slingshot, hits Goliath in the forehead, kills him, decapitates him. David defeats Goliath. So when everyone else was saying, Goliath is too big to beat, David was saying, Goliath is too big to miss. All right? There was a difference in opinion there. Now, 
here's the thing, and I've already kind of touched at this. David defeats Goliath. Or does he? Wait a second. We know the story. Everyone knows the story. But did David defeat Goliath? You see, he didn't. David didn't defeat Goliath. And this is the missing link in this story. And this is what you're not going to hear from broadcasters on ESPN. David didn't defeat Goliath. David and God defeated Goliath. Big difference. Big difference. David and God defeated Goliath. Incredibly important. Because if David was really all that with his slingshot, if it was because of his skill and acumen and, and what speed or whatever else you, else you want to throw in here, if it was because he was that good that he defeated Goliath, this story is a cool story but has nothing to say to me, right? Nothing practical that I can use because I may not be that skilled with a slingshot. I may not have that kind of ability. Um, I may not have that kind of courage, honestly. So if it's that story, no relevance to me, really. Interesting, good, like it, not for me. Or if it was just luck, you know. I mean, he swung this thing, and just the odds were there was a chance, a one in a million chance. So you're saying there's a chance. Well, he hit him in the forehead and killed him, and it was luck. Well, neither one of those versions of the story have much to say to me. But if this is a story about David and, and God, well, then it has a lot to say to you and me. It means that I never face hopeless situations because I never face any situation alone. Um, it tells me that God and I are working together and that I can always count on his presence. All right? And no one is saying, by the way, no one is saying that David wasn't good with the slingshot. Right? We're not saying that. Surely he had practiced a lot of time. We're saying, though, the most important factor was not that skill. The most important factor was the God factor, was that he wasn't facing Goliath alone. Now, so this isn't the David versus Goliath story. This is the David and God versus Goliath story. Uh, and this is what's important, guys. This is so important. David himself wanted to make this absolutely clear. Before the combat starts, David wants to look everybody in the eye and say, this is not me, guys. This is God. And so the Philistine has had his chance week after week to shout insults and to lay down his challenge. David says, I have a speech I want to make. Makes the speech to Goliath, but it is overheard by both armies. Here goes verses 45 to 47. David said to the Philistine, you have come against me with with sword and spear, javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will hand you over to me, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. He will give all of you into our hands. So what about you? Is there a spiritual battle going on in your life? You're hearing the taunts, you're hearing the ridicule, 
and you're feeling that in your heart and you're quaking with fear, the spiritual battle is too much. Maybe it's one, maybe it's an ongoing battle. Maybe it's a dark corner of sin in your life that you've tried to deal with, but you have never been able to conquer. Maybe it's not in the spiritual world as much as it's in the material world. Maybe it's a financial battle, battle with unemployment, a battle with debt. Maybe it is a battle with health, a doctor's diagnosis. What is that battle? What is that giant that you are facing that you need to bring this kind of attitude, this kind of faith to bear on that situation. What is that situation? Let your heart trust in God. Let your powerful God fight for you. And declare to yourself and to those around you that you will not fight this battle alone. One of my favorite Christian authors nowadays is John Ortberg, and he tells a story that I think you'll enjoy in one of his books. It goes like this. He says, 15 years ago, I was walking in Newport Beach, Southern California, with two friends, both on staff at my church. Everybody was either an elder or on staff. We walked past a bar, and a fight had been going on inside the bar, and it spilled out of the doors into the street, just like an old Western or something. Several guys beating up on this guy who was bleeding from the forehead, and we knew we had to do something, so we went over to break the fight up. But I hadn't had too much experience in this kind of thing. I missed that class in seminary when they talked about how to break up fights at a bar. So I don't think we were very intimidating. We just went over there and said, hey, you guys cut that out. It didn't do much good. But then all of a sudden... They look at us with this fear in their eyes, and the guys that had been beating up on this fellow stopped, and they started to slink away, and I didn't know why until we turned around and saw behind us, coming out of the door of the bar, the biggest guy we had ever seen. He was like six foot seven, maybe 300 pounds, 2% body fat, just huge. Like if Hercules and Wonder Woman had had a child together. We called him Bubba. We didn't call him that to his face. But afterwards in talking about him, we referred to him as Bubba, and Bubba didn't say a word. He just stood there and flexed. And you could tell that he was the kind of guy that was kind of hoping someone would have a go at him. All of a sudden, my attitude was transformed, and I said to these guys, you better not let us catch you coming around here again. <laughs> I was a different person because I had a great big bubba. I was ready to confront the situation with resolve and firmness. I was released from anxiety and fear. I was filled with boldness and confidence. I was ready to help someone that needed helping. I was ready to serve where serving was required. Why? Because I had a great big bubba. I was convinced I was not alone. I was safe. And I'll tell you something else, Ortberg writes. If I were convinced that Bubba were with me 24 hours a day, I would have a fundamentally different approach to my life. You would not want to mess with me if I knew Bubba was behind me all day long. Of course, he's not. I can't count on Bubba. Preston Christ. Here's what God wants you to hear. Here's what God needs for you to hear this morning. You and I will face battles. I mean, Jesus said you'll face tribulations, right? But take heart. 
We will face battles, psychological battles, family battles, relationship battles, career battles, financial battles, spiritual battles. We will face those, but because of our faith in God, we will not face those alone. We have a very large God standing behind us, flexing his muscles at whatever situation we face. And that makes a pretty big difference. I like what Romans 8.31 says. Paul is thinking of, of what it means for God to be standing with us. And he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? I like that. So, what was it about David, though? What was it about David that made him special? There had to be something, because God doesn't show up in everyone's life like this. The Bible says in 1 Samuel that David was, and you've heard this before probably, a man after God's own heart. Now, that phrase is a bit of a head-scratcher for some people. David, man after God's own heart. Would that be David the adulterer? Are we talking about the David who ordered the hit on the woman's husband to try to clean things up? That David? Man after God's own heart? Look, if you read the writings of David, if you read about the life of David, you know he was messed up. You know he had problems. But you also know he had a heart that continually returned to God. He had a heart that continually humbled itself, continually repented, continually start over, and, and continually trusted in God. I mean, the guy wrote volumes about it. Wrote volumes of poems and volumes of songs about the fact that God was the one at work in his life. In fact, he wrote in Psalm 108, verse 13, With God we will gain the victory, and he will trample down our enemies. So what I want to talk to you, because David was not a guy, he didn't take victory laps, right, after his successes and say, wow, look at me. He pointed to God. So what we want to talk about is, how can we honor God in our conflicts? We know we're going to have them. We know we're going to have battles. How do we honor God in those? This is on your outline this morning. The first principle is this that we see from the life of David. I will exercise my faith. I will exercise my faith. Faith is not simply some intellectual concept. It is not agreeing with the fact that God exists or the idea of God, faith is living on the reality of God, right? That's why you've got the brother of Jesus, James in the New Testament that says, faith without works is, it's dead. It's not faith. Faith just up here. Faith saying, yeah, I believe in God, but it makes no difference the way you talk, the way you act, the way you dream. It's not faith. In fact, I, as I was thinking about this story this week, I was thinking, you know, I bet if you could get in a time machine, go back to 1 Samuel chapter 17, and there the, the lines are, are put together. You've got all the Israelite soldiers lined up. You've got all the Philistine soldiers lined up. And I bet if you just took your clipboard and walked up and down the Israelite lines doing your survey, do you believe in God? 
I think you would have a vast majority of Israeli or Israelite soldiers saying, yes. Do you believe in God? Of course I believe in God. Do you believe in God? Yes. You might even find that it was unanimous. They all believed in God. I don't know, but you get the idea. So what is the difference between David and everybody else? Well, for David, faith isn't just about a mental thing. It's about a moving thing. Faith is about moving into battle, believing not only in the existence of God, but in the fact that God is at work in his life. And that is an exciting kind of faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, talking about faith, says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. You can't please God without faith. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists. Okay, check mark. Believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him, right? Believes that he exists and believes that he is actually doing something in their lives, that he is actually taking care of them, that he's actually rewarding them. And that allowed David to move forward in faith when everybody else was running for cover. Faith is like a muscle when faith is exercised it grows. When it's not, it atrophies. Right? You can read all of the books you want about tight abs. Okay? You can read all the bestsellers about tight abs. But if you don't do the workouts, you're not going to have tight abs. You can read all the Bible you want about God. You can learn all the facts you want about God. But if you don't exercise your faith in God, you will have a flabby faith. Paul encouraged the Philippians in Philippians 2 verse 12 to, I love this phrase, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation. Faith is a workout. It's not a workshop. It's a workout. It's not just learning in here. It's living it out there. David understood that God is honored in battles when faith is put into action, when faith is exercised, when trust is translated into goals, is translated into words, is translated into actions. And we need to understand this as well to honor God in our battles. The second thing is this. Write this down on your outline. Refuse to plagiarize God. And if you don't know how to spell plagiarize, I think I misspelled it this week. But spell check, thank goodness for that. Um, plagiarize God. Don't plagiarize God. Intentionally and openly offer grateful thanksgiving to God for every victory you experience. Here's the definition of plagiarism. All right, here goes. It is the practice of taking someone else's words or ideas and passing them off as one's own. Let me explain this. About a week ago, I'm... Driving, I'm on a road trip with James Gray, who's a member here, a good friend of mine. And James is just one of the most godly men that I know. And we're talking about some of these ideas. And James looks at me and says, Gordon, if you take credit for something God does, that's kind of like plagiarizing God. And I'm like, I love that. It is. When God does something in my life, when God is at work in my life, and I don't say anything to you guys... 
when I'm quiet about it and I leave everybody to think, wow, he must just be really smart or really great or really this or really that or really lucky. I'm plagiarizing God. I'm not giving him the glory that he deserves. So have you ever, for example, have you ever prayed for a surgery that it would go well and it did? Have you ever prayed to have a job when you were unemployed and God answered that prayer? Have you ever... um, Have you ever seen, have you ever prayed to God that you would do your best at this presentation or this activity and you knocked the ball out of the park? Have you ever prayed to God that he would do something surprising and new and wonderful in your life? And he did. Now, of course you have. Of course you have. And if the Lord acted on you, for you, in you, or through you, and you did not acknowledge that, not just up here, but acknowledge that publicly, you have plagiarized God. Here's the thing. You exist for the glory of God. You were created to bring God glory. That's what we are supposed to do. Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10.31, I love this because it's just the routine things of life. He says, so whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do. Do it all for the glory of God. Even the most mundane thing can bring God the glory if you will allow it to. So whenever God works in your life, this is what David did, whenever God works in your life, publicize it. Text it, tweet it, Facebook it, testify to it. Give God the glory, anything less is, is plagiarizing God. Here's the thing. You may win a victory in life, but you don't wear the crown. When God gives you a victory in life, when God wins for you, you return that praise to God and you honor him in your battles. Big Mama, one thing I love about you, you are vocal about your faith in God. You shout it, you bring it every Sunday, you love the Lord Jesus. Your neighbor one time was complaining about, oh no, what's going on in there? I hear my neighbor yelling and shouting. And the postman came to your door and said, your neighbor thinks you're sick or something. You said, hey, I'm just praising God in here. I'll tell you what, big mama, if anybody comes up to you and and tells you to be quiet or keep it down, you tell them they ought to be ashamed of themselves because you were created to glorify God and that's what you do. That's what we do, folks. God doesn't choose the able. He enables the chosen. His chosen people, that means you. His chosen people honor him and experience the flow of his story in their lives when they exercise their faith, when they translate the idea of faith, the belief, they translate into that into words and actions and a lifestyle. And the chosen refuse to plagiarize God. Instead, they intentionally and openly offer praise to God for every victory. So the truth is, as a child of God, you have a powerful friend standing behind you in any situation, flexing his muscles. The truth is, even death cannot separate you from this forever friend. On the other hand, sin can separate you from God. 
Sin can create distance between you and God. Sin can rupture a connection with God. And here is why you need to know that God, this is the story of the gospel, folks. God, with great love and great sacrifice, took care of your problem of sin. God, through his son, Jesus Christ, through his death, through his burial, and through his resurrection, has dealt with your sin crisis. So now, through faith in Christ, there isn't anything that can separate you from the God who loves you. It is grace. It is the gift of God that has saved you. All right? I've got a question for you. don't have to answer this out loud, but does the idea of grace make you a little fidgety? Um, some fear, some people fear, some Christians fear that too much talk about grace might be construed as either a license to do whatever you want or might be used as an excuse to simply be the same old you without changing, without transforming, without discipleship. Some people are afraid of that. Um, grace scares certain Christians. That's probably why the church that I grew up in was so hush-hush about grace. Good people, godly people, love those people, but very quiet about grace. Now, I'm convinced, and I know this is the teaching of Scripture, I'm convinced, though, that the opposite is true of grace. If you believe, for example, if you believe that your salvation depends on your performance, you will be fearful. You will be, frankly, mediocre in your Christian life. You will be so cautious and you will be so careful that you won't get any glimpse of the potential that God wants to unleash in your life. Only when you know the freedom, only when you know the joy of God-given grace can you change from the inside out into the person God wants you to be. Only when you understand that your powerful friend has already won the victory for you will you be the man or woman that God wants you to be. Will you take off? Well, so question. When you understand that you are saved by grace up here and in here, when you get it that you are saved by grace, does that make you more or less likely to do great things for God. What happens to a person who fully absorbs the reality that their victory has already been won on the cross? What happens to that person? Are they more fearful? Are they more faithful? Are they more courageous? Or are they more careful? Back to my X Games addiction. This is back in 2012. It was at Aspen as it was this year back in 2012. So Aspen 2012, super pipe event. Even with a bum ankle, Sean White dominated the competition, won his fifth straight gold medal. In fact, he was so far ahead after rounds one and two, he didn't even need to take his third run. Think about that. 
on his third and final run, he could have taken off his snowboard and walked down. <laughs> he could have slid down on his bottom. He, could, he, he didn't need the third and final run. Now, this is what's interesting about this. Track with me on this. Didn't need to make it. Could have scored a zero on the final run and still gotten the gold medal. But on his final run, he didn't just ride it out. He didn't just go down. He scored a perfect hundred. The only perfect hundred before or after in the history of the superpipe. Scored by a guy who didn't even need to make the run. A guy who knew he had already won the race. I think that's why Jesus wants us to take communion together so often. It's not about grape juice and crackers. It's about sitting there and taking those elements and reflecting on the truth that 2,000 years ago, the victory was won for you. It's remembering that you already have a place on the podium bought for you by the blood of Jesus Christ. And the freedom and the joy that come with knowing that, that will allow you to fly higher than you ever could have if you thought this thing depended on you. And because of what Jesus did, we can grow up into the perfection of Christ. We can become the men and women that he wants us to be. I believe that the grace of God inspires the best in us, not the worst.